So do we have any questions? Yes. Uh, how much do you think that the people receiving these notifications um, are seeing what they are, and how many of them are they the particular ones which are very much information, like just getting dozens of sound filters, or being filtered out by people receiving them? Because it strikes me that very much like the uh, presentation on Facebook, um, that a lot of the issue here is that if it's just coming from a random report, then there's no assumption of trust that this is going to pay attention to. No, I think, I think that's, that's definitely true. One of the things that we would like to maybe experiment with is, dif is how different signals of trust are more effective. Um, I could just use this where the sender came from. It could be whether or not you've had personal contact with someone in the company. That's how things typically work. Um, in, the, in this study, I think it's quite possible the fact that we saw this added information about the attack um, may have been the trusted because, because it actually provided more credibility that this is something you didn't just want to know. I have a question for John. Um, I was wondering, in the notifications that you showed that people received once they were trying to paste this code into their console, the, the way the messages were framed was very individual. Frame in sense of an attacker might take over your computer, you might have some issues with this. Have you thought about framing these notifications from a social perspective? That clicking or or um, installing this, running this thing, will actually cause problems not just for you, but for your friends. It may affect their computer, it may take the money from them. I mean, these users are probably very concerned about how they look like to their friends. So taking this would be a very big cost if you're made aware of the implications of the people around you. Yeah, so I think that's, that's a good idea in that um, a bit of peer pressure, I think. So that's what you were saying before, can uh, sometimes help uh, encourage people to, to behave in a way that might be more um, in line with the rules. But equally, a lot of the time, the people who are being exploited here think they're doing something a bit mischievous anyway. So they think they're trying to hack someone's profile or find out how many um, people have viewed their profile. And therefore, they know they're doing something wrong, and, and this kind of social pattern may or may not help. But to be fair, we've not done a huge amount of experimentation around with the kind of the actual text of those warnings. Also, um, I'll just add a small technical difference, which is that we can certainly put warnings on the console itself saying this could be bad JavaScript, but it's really down to the browsers to, to implement this because they have control over the console uh, over the browser itself. So um, and for them, it would be difficult for them to say this is all about a social context when it could be any website anywhere doing it. So. Um, I have one in the back there and then here. Um, so another question for John. Uh, given that Facebook has a great sense of the social side, isn't there some way that you could, uh, maybe, why isn't it the case that people who install those things look for the reputation that you still have? Like, I think that nobody has reported actually getting 10,000 views out of the URD. Maybe you just get one star or whatever people do for breaking those things. Like you see always social companies, how many stars, and have people given the reason for that. So a lot of the time we see these kind of attacks from um, pages, kind of fake profiles have been set up. Um, and part of the attack will to give them more followers to make them appear more reputable. And they'll come with a video where they show, oh, look, Someone did this and they got you know, 
thousand new likes and the, the video is fake or it's a complete. So all the validation is from shields from the accomplices of Yeah, so partly the validation is from people who have already performed this uh, attack on themselves and haven't kind of cleaned up after or maybe they never will, but also they've just fabricated some example of this work. So we see that a lot. Uh, also, something for John, if I may, also a question for because some of the words um, So, what was it shows uh, with the script and what it does? It reminded me uh, very much of the suicide bomb. So you kind of put yourself and spy your friends by by doing that. So, given the fact that sometimes it's um, it's difficult to get rid of Facebook, don't you think that some people might consider to committing suicide on Facebook by by doing that? So maybe they have this intention. I want to do that. <laughs> 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 kind of a, an automated way of saying I'm leaving and then and running away. So, <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> yeah. I just may ask Nicholas something. Um, in your experiments, um, how could you verify that uh, the computers people were using were theirs and not computers in we couldn't verify it with perfect certainty, but um, two things. Uh, first of all, we asked people again, um, you know, were you running like a virtual machine and things like that? And this is something I didn't mention in the talk. One person actually said yes, because I thought this was dangerous and I wanted to run it in a sandbox environment. One out of 965. Um, people who were also um, running this, uh, this program, this was tied to their Amazon user ID. We did notice that a few people were trying to gain the system by farming them out to multiple machines, but most of the time they were using that on, you know, one user was using one account. It is possible that some of them actually took defensive measures. We didn't, like I said, we couldn't control for all possible defensive measures, but the simplest ones, such as, you know, running it in the VM, most people actually didn't do that, or when they did, that's because they were running on that. Uh, just following points on John's response to the thing about peer pressure, I think there could be potential mileage in looking at what's seen as anti-normative, because you're right, it's one thing that people who say actually they're mischievous, but wouldn't there be a difference between let's be mischievous against the big organisation Facebook, or let's do something that disadvantages our friends? And it's not my area, but I understand there's a lot that looks at the self-policing of online groups and if you behave in an anti-normative way that's regulated by other people and I'm, I'm thinking of the phenomenon that's happened in the UK recently that there's this neo-fascist group called Britain First and I've seen people setting up online campaigns saying unfollow anyone you know who likes to suck and it's, it seems to be quite a powerful thing going around on Twitter and you can like, go into the link and you can find out if your friends are following you and then everyone announces on Twitter that they're then unfollowing those people because it seems to be within in certain groups online, that's a very anti-normative thing to do. So I think there might be a lot of kind of self-care for this Yeah, that's interesting. Um, part of the, the challenge with this is that these kind of attacks pop up and then they get squashed, we stop them eventually, and they pop up again with a completely different link, a different video, a, a different everything. So there's not kind of one thing to point at and say everyone should dislike that. But um, it's true that it would be very helpful if we could say, look, uh, if we have a bit of peer pressure around not 
trying to do these things that won't work anyway. I don't know. And we'll have your friends and they work monthly. Yeah, fine. Peter and Chancellor Tyler, actually, and I have a distressing number of acronyms that I'll get through in the next few sentences, but to start, um, I'm wondering how much authentication is an issue in reaching out and giving notice to all this. And if it is part of the issue, there's a series of initiatives under NSTIC, which is the U.S. Department of Com uh, Commerce okay. effort to do uh, trusted strategies in cyberspace. And GTRI, which is Georgia Tech Research Institute, okay. has a project uh, under that specifically for law enforcement related um, uh, authentication, something called the GFIPM, the Global Federated Identity and Privilege Management. And that's been fed into a bigger thing called the National Identity Exchange Federation. This is a series of acronyms that exist as real things beyond acronyms um, <laughs> uh, that are attempting to give better uh, belief across law enforcement in the United States that these are really law enforcement people coming in that you should trust that this is a real comment and not some sort of pretend person. And it's, it's an attempt to try to have, we really mean it, this is part of a cybercrime investigation that is, is there's all infrastructure that's been underway for a while, and by buying into that, you might get some more trusted authentication if you come in with notices. So that's something to... Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good pointer. I mean, the one, the, I think, yeah, Confederated Identity Management help this potentially. Um, it seems like that the concern is not so much that you don't know who this person is. The concern is that you may not, that the person sending this information to you might not be competent or might give you um, recommendations that are incorrect, saying this, this URL is bad, take it down, and you take it down and, it, and it's not correct. It's because the volume of these notices is often very high, especially for large providers. And so they, they, the, for them, trust is taking, taking reports from someone that they, they know if they act on them, they're not going to have these negative consequences. So, so, that, so Federated Identity Management won't solve that problem, but it could solve the problem that, hey, you know, this, this is coming from a law enforcement agent, so we should pay attention uh, to start. Uh, my question is actually for Harold. I was really struck by your point about there not being delete buttons on a lot of this equipment and what that symbolized, because for me it was reminding me of uh, other problems um, in, in my context in the military, the zero defect mentality, where you're basically it only encourages scapegoating and cover-ups if you don't give any, any method for, for admitting mistakes or mistakes are looked at in that way. And I'm wondering if you could just say a little bit more about how does the medical community respond when you point this out, that, that all of these types of equipment don't have the loop buttons? And what that does to this unhealthy command climate? Do, are they just, they want to hear it, or do they listen to you at all? Is there any movement on that? Yeah, uh, some of the procurement community, um, they're very interested because they buy different products. The main criterion for buying hospital product is the consumer rules. Because, you know, like mobile phone battery chargers, all the bits of plastic tubing you plug into a dialysis machine or whatever, every manufacturer is different. So the actual cost over the lifetime is the consumables. And many manufacturers will give you a dialysis machine for free if you're going to sign up for 20 years of bits of plastic tubing. Um, the, some devices allow you to enter numbers, for instance, for drug doses or whatever it is, uh, allowing for error. So up down, 
you increase the number, decrease it. You can change the number as you're entering it. Whereas the numeric keypad, you can't change the number once you've entered it. And it turns out that uh, up-down user interfaces have about a third of the final error rate. And you can tell the given people this and they don't revert to bind. Uh, another approach is, uh, it's rather nice because uh, an Arabic keypad has 10 or 11 buttons on it, and up down has only got two, so they're cheaper machines as well. Uh, there's also what's called a four key interface, so you move the cursor left and right amongst the number and increase and decrease digits, and the now allows people carry on until the number's right. Whereas if you've got an Arabic keypad, well, you know what the number is, you just type it, and often people don't even look at the number because they know what they typed. And if they made a typing error, they don't notice it. So it's actually both cheaper and safer to do it with the other ones. For those examples, yeah. Fantastic. Thank you. I wanted to, if you talk to people from the safety community, they have this rather disparaging blame of trade, right, which is what you're other what we're talking about, which is that instead of trying to fix the devices, they blame the users or send them versus or training devices and so forth. And from time to time, people suggest user education as a way of fixing security uh, products online. I'm in favour of education because I work at the university. <laughs> I think we have to. I think, I think you have to educate the right people. It's the programmers who need education. Yes, and you also have to pick what you're going to educate about. I think that the example from Facebook is a really great example of where, if you actually, that's something you can educate the public about, which is that there is this generic scam whereby somebody persuades you to paste in something that you don't understand, and bad things happen. That's a fairly straightforward story, and you can, you can train people about that and explain it to them because then they'll recognize it. It's a bit like the three cartridge, right? You may not have seen the particular variant of the three cartridge, but if you stand there for a few minutes, eventually you'll think, This is the three cartridge, I'm going to lose money here. Right? The other question is who you trust online. I think that's probably Facebook's problem in here because I've been sitting at the back here. Uh, I've been using my favorite search engine, and I've typed in a nice string which uh, finds these pages. Right? And in order to filter down the ones which, of course, we can trust, which have reputable sources, I put site code on Facebook.com and my string, and I have 42,500 different pages which explain how to do this console paste that is what you have to fix in the short term, in the medium term, I think you have to try a little bit of training. So, training-wise, I agree, and in fact, if you visit our, I think it's a security blog page on Facebook, it's kind of the, the top story at the moment, as we talk, talk through this kind of attack. Um, again, I think it's difficult because people might well know they're doing something that's that Facebook thinks is illegitimate, and there's a kind of a scam around it. And it's quite hard to persuade people to take the time to read through what is quite a complicated explanation of the scam. So I think that's part of it, but I'm not convinced that this works at scale. So, a very quick follow up question to John. Uh, you said it was a small sample, but it must have been big enough to be able to capture 92% or 2%, so it can't be tiny. Uh, how many of the people exposed completely, at least? That maybe didn't actually execute it. Uh, what's the size of that number versus the size of people who, on an average month, read the security blog? <laughs> um, I, I couldn't tell you. So, the, the reason the, the last stat, the last 92% versus 8% was collected in a different way, one of the reasons that I can't really 
I can't sum up my those stats and say these are definitive just because they include different collection mechanisms, so they're not terribly comparative. Um, so the last stat was uh, yeah, is a basic example, but um, I imagine the the number of people who read. The problem is not the number of people who read the Facebook security blog posts and things, it's versus the number of people who don't and get exploited. It's that they're probably different groups, but I don't know that. So, I don't know the short answer, unfortunately. Yeah. So, I'm going to come on that uh, suggestion. Have, could you try to contact some of the people that solve this, asking them to tell their story in their own words on the Facebook security blog? So, that storytelling is a really powerful way that people uh, kind of, it, it, it helps other people understand what happened in a lot easier way. Yeah, that's a really interesting idea, actually. We, we've not thought about doing that, but that might. And it's. <laughs> Um, it's really kind of nice content because people enjoy hearing stories. So yeah, yeah, I like it. Following, following up on that, getting people who are addicted to this to tell their friends about having been addicted to this, um, take take that one step further. Actually, put it in the security box, but encouraging people to say um, how you encourage them is part of your business. How you encourage people to use Facebook in the ways that are beneficial to Facebook is part of your business, of course. Trying to figure out how to get them to tell them, all their friends, hey, look, I'm really sorry. This is what happened to me. And this is why it, you know, suddenly you came to my site and um, it looked the best. You know, if you try and get them to not feel embarrassed about telling their friends, say, yeah, a lot of people fell in face of this, and, but don't be like being a little Make it a modicon for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Seriously, laughs> it's a modicon. Um, it's, it's tricky though. I'm conscious that uh, you run the risk of actually um, interfering with a lot of people's time in order to, to share a story about a, a small number. So this attack is by far not our, like, the, the big issue. Facebook is just one of the, the kind of things we talk about. And there is a chance that we then kind of waste the time of a lot of people who would never be victim of this. And if we look to the, the statistics on it, um, 90%, 80%, uh, but the waterfall of the people who actually eventually get conned is pretty small. But that's, that, that's the same for almost any scam. Yeah. You look at four months, um, and you know, if the billions of four months just go out, um, and it's tiny and you can fall prey, but it's a big problem still. Well, what's interesting with this case is that the actually the impact is it's irritating, but it's not quite as big as the four nine scan impact. I guess like you share things, it's not desperately terrible. So maybe the, the cost to, in terms of uh, having to see a lot of the warnings is not the same as the cost of actually the more personal rating. Well, well, presumably a warning that comes direct from a friend is paid attention to, unlike one that comes from a lawyer. But I do recall hearing from a young person oh, five or ten years ago when I remarked on unsafe computing practices. She just shrugged her shoulders and said, look, um, nowadays it's not at all disgraceful if you give your friends a computer virus. Now, I, I wonder if that has changed over the last few years since Facebook came along and what attitudes really are. 
and you know whether that's just what people say or it's what they really feel when people boast about it like they had a tattoo or like they had a curfew tag on their ankle um, just just a thought for research so um, one way I see addressing this problem is obviously we could have browsers send up a header whenever debug mode is on so that if there's an Ajax call or whatever you can see if debug mode is on and ignore that action or give it a display a message or what have you. And if there's developers want to be able to develop and test without sending the header that debug mode is on, this seems like a like an acceptable place to put a warning. You don't want to put right? the problem with warnings is you don't want to use them too often. But once when you first turn on developer mode on your browser, it seems like few enough people do it and you only have to give the warning once that this would be a perfectly acceptable place to put a warning in a browser, uh, which is, do you want to turn debug mode on? It's, it, this is useful either if you're a developer or most of the time you're being told to turn it on. It's because of a scam or what the comments look like. Um, so yeah, in fact, when we first, when uh, my colleague first invented this uh, system that kind of blocked the console and say, hold a minute, if we also offered an opportunity to turn it back on, you had to go through and say, yes, I, I, uh, I accept the risk of running malicious JavaScript in effect, something along those lines. Um, and that kind of solution has been proposed a few times. One of the challenges is that having this option to, to turn off the, um, you know, to, to say, yes, I'm a developer, that gets embedded into all the instructions you follow as part of the uh, the attack. And we saw that immediately. Absolutely. And which, so, is, which is why you needed the warning there. Uh, yeah, uh, that's tricky. But um, it's one of those things where uh, it does help, but I suspect the actual the impact of the, the one-off warning is it's not as huge as we would hope, but you're thinking exactly online. Kind of there are a few cases where warnings have been designed knowing that the adversary is. So if you look, for example, at, at the social authentication stuff we did back in 2007 or 2008, right, we knew we had people attacking that warning, and so it was designed explicitly knowing that attackers there. And, and you can get pretty good efficacy if you, if you are designing warnings custom with, with fairly good knowledge about how the attacks are to be made. So the problem is going to be very generic. So Richard's point about not trying to second guess what people actually count as losses and how they mind about them. And I wanted to back up what Ross was saying. But actually, I think we, in many cases, we, we, we don't, don't know what the cost psychologically, potentially, and so on, is to the users of the particular kinds of what we would define as losses are going to be. Um, I mean, in the wider world, we know that again and again, people know, well, Dave was talking about you know, going to prison isn't a loss for a particular class of people. It's actually a benefit. Uh, there are people with Munchausen syndrome who actually like getting sick. Um, there's a kind of thrill associated with being, you know, having had uh, been attacked and survived it, and so on. And I think it'd be, it's actually a very important area to research because what may be preventing people taking actions, as Richard was saying, is that, um, is that, they, that, 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 that they actually don't mind much about suffering the kind of losses which were helping to protect them against. Sorry, I just wanted to add this one point um, that I would make me think of. Uh, when we informed people in the debriefing that they had actually, had we been bad people, their machine would have been compromised. 
quite a few of them responded with literally volleys of insults back to us. People do not like to be told that they were wrong. So this is perhaps a little bit of a caveat to what you were uh, suggesting that you know, share your experience with other people that you did something really stupid and pay the price for it. I'm not so sure that people would be embracing that. Something that we've seen also in a study that we did with Tyler, we've been studying compromised websites. And when we told people, look, this is what's happened to you and we're going to help you fix it, the first reaction was, no, no, it's not us. Google is broken. We are fine. So there's, people are very defensive and it's, you know, it's human nature. You don't like to be shown you're wrong, right? So people tend to react a little bit defensive. Just a caveat that I wanted to respond to. I think it's an that we need to be customers. We are done with this session, I think. We're time for the break. Thank you very much.